You've probably heard it all before, but this time, let Dr. Lanker connect the dots in a way that makes the Christian faith come alive. I'm your host, Dr. Jason Lanker, and I'm here to help you connect the dots. As a pastor and professor for the last 30 years, I want to help you not only understand the Christian faith, but to make it a transformative part of your everyday experience. Join me as we connect the dots. In our last episode, we saw how incredible it was that God made a covenant with Abram. It was something unknown in the ancient world, and for God himself to come to this unknown man and to say, I will make a great nation out of you, a nation that will bless the world, there's a great expectation now in the text of what God is going to do. Abram, in following God, as we read along in chapter 12, leaves his homeland and goes to the land of Canaan. And once he gets there, God speaks to him at the tree of Morah and says, this is going to be the land that I'm going to give to you. Abram then makes an altar, and that's where he worships God and says, hey, you know what? If this is your land, then I will worship you in your place. And this is common in the ancient world because the ancient people connected gods to the land. And so he establishes Canaan, in essence, as the land of Yahweh. If that's Yahweh's land, then we expect Abram to just be fruitful and multiply, filling the earth, subdue it, and ruling over it, because this gets back to the original call on all creation. But what happens immediately afterwards is that it says a famine hits the land, and Abram has to go to Egypt, which raises questions about how good Yahweh really is. If this is really his land, if he's in control, then he should be able to take care of Abram inside the land of Canaan. Not only does he not show provision or miraculous provision in this place, but Abram feels so compelled to protect and take care of himself and his people that he tells his wife Sarai to say that she's his sister. Now, there is a half-truth in that. She's part of the family. As being part of the family, she's related in a way. And so she is a sister, but technically she's his wife. And so he tells her, let's not lose our lives over this thing. Just say you're my sister. Well, Pharaoh sees her and all of the other Egyptians see her and they call her Yepa, which is a word for just beauty. Now, if we're following along, this Sarai is at this point about 70 years old. Not too many 70-year-old women are being described as beautiful. But what the word yepa means to be womanly, to, to have the attributes of being a woman, most often when we see it in scripture, it's actually used of cows, that that cow was yepa. It, it fit what a cow is supposed to be and what its purpose is. And so there's something deeply womanly about Sarai. And that is attractive to them, and so they want her as part of their harem. It's actually a foreshadowing as well of her true potential. She can't have children at this point, but she is a woman's woman. She is unique, she is special, and God is going to use this woman that seems incapable, and literally is incapable in her own power, of producing a child, and he is going to take her womanliness and produce this special heir through her obedience and through her relationship with Abram. Finally, the Pharaoh figures this out at the end of chapter 12 and releases 
Abram with lots of cattle and she basically a payment back for the disease that's brought upon the Egyptians. This payment is common in the ancient world. It was a way to pay off the gods for your misdeeds. He's also not very happy with Abram, but Abram turns around, leaves Egypt, and heads back to Canaan, and he heads back there with all of his people, one of those being Lot. Lot was the son of his brother who had come with Abram on this journey, probably as a chance to get out of the house, to find and make his own name, And when they get back to the land of Canaan, they have so many flocks that they can't work together. And so Abram says, look over everything. What do you choose? Lot chooses to go to the cities of the plain. These are the cities that were around the Dead Sea at this point. We don't know if it was the Dead Sea at that point. Maybe not because it shows itself to be an incredible place for civilization. So Abram lets Lot take the best land. And as soon as that happens, God turns to Abram and says in verses 14 to 17 of chapter 13, I promise you all the land that you see, Abram. And the way that he promises it to him, he says to him, go walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I am giving it to you. That language is very common to ancient suzerain stipulations and royal land grants. The king, the person who is in control of that land would say to one of their treasured people, one of the people that they trust, that they want to bless, here's the land, go walk through it, go establish it, go kind of claim it for yourself, and that will be yours. After doing that, it jumps to chapter 14, and it gives us this whole story about these five kings that we don't know exactly where they're from, but they seem to be a coalition throughout the entire ancient Near East, going all the way to Persia and all the way up to Turkey that they come because of the rebellion of the kings in this area, and they come to reconquer them. And they do. They take away all of their plunder. They take away all of their people, which they see as fair game because you made us come and take all of our troops and all of our time and all of our resources to reconquer you. So this is your payment back to us. Abram is first described here as Abram the Hebrew. That word Hebrew doesn't show up anywhere else in the ancient literature except in a phrase that's called apiru. So most scholars think that Hebrew is actually a derivative of this term apiru, and apiru was used by different peoples in the ancient Near East to describe transient or dispossessed or unlanded people. And so Abram is described as this unlanded person. Even though God has made a promise, he does not control it. It's not his. I I don't know if you've ever been in between houses. In that place when you're couch surfing, most often probably when you're in college, that's the time that you want a place that you can go back to and that can be yours and that you can establish it. You want that today. You don't want to wait for months to get to that point. And yet, as we follow along with this story, Abram is willing to trust God so much that he is going to have his land, that he doesn't have to take what becomes rightfully his. And what becomes rightfully his is literally all of the lands that have been conquered by these five kings. Why? Because after Lot, along with everybody else that they've conquered, is taken back and they're going to be taken to their homeland, Abram hears about it, 
pulls his army together, which is just about 300 people. He gets a few other guys that live in Canaan to come with him, and they track down these great kings who've conquered everybody. They meet them in the middle of the night up near Dan, which is up near Lebanon in the forest, and they kind of get them when they're not ready. And when they defeat them, the armies run away, they take all their plunder, and they take all of their people, and they head back. And this is where we get the story of Melchizedek. Melchizedek comes down out of Salem, which is literally peace, and he comes and he meets Abram, and he says, hey, I greet you in the name of El Elyon, God Most High, I pronounce a blessing on you. And this point is a real chance for Abram to establish his authority. By being blessed by Melchizedek, Melchizedek is basically saying, you have literally all the goods. You have all of the territory. It's all in your hands. I just want to be blessed by you, so I'm going to come out and I'm going to bless you first. What Abram does, though, is that he gives 10% of what he has plundered back from these five kings, he gives it to Melchizedek, in essence saying, you are truly the great king, it's not me. He gives up all rights and authority to this land and his position. And then right behind it, the king of Sodom is standing right there and says, hey, can I just have my people and have them back? That would make my life better. We can reestablish ourselves. Abram then says, not only do I give you your people, I give you all of the plunder except what was needed to eat and whatever these three guys who came with me, whatever they want to take for their labor and for taking the risk of going after these kings. Why? Because I have made an oath to God himself that I will not be made great by your power. I will only be made great by his power. It's recorded nowhere else in scripture. There's no vision or little side story of this happening. So this is something that Abram in his interactions with Yahweh makes this promise, I will wait for you to make me great. I will not use my own power to establish that. So when we look at this story of Abraham, what do we see about God? First, we see that God is truly in control of all creation. It's his to give, and it's his to withhold. He chooses to give to Abram the land of Canaan, and he gives it as the true ruler in that process. The second thing that we see is that God gives his power, his land, his prestige, and his wealth at the appointed time and in the appointed way. When we try to make it happen, we've missed how God works. God is truly the one in control, the one putting it into practice, and we need to trust him for his timing and his way. If you enjoyed listening today, please subscribe to our podcast. And if you'd like more information, please visit us at drjasonlanker.com. That's D-R-Jason-L-A-N-K-E-R. May you go in the grace of God, and may you not just understand the Christian faith, but live it more fully this week.